Well, it's good to see everyone tonight. We're still studying the book of Second Peter, and we're in the third chapter. This is our last chapter, and I trust possibly the last lesson. So let's open our Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3, if you will. Second Peter chapter 3 has 18 verses, and we'll begin with verse 1. Peter says this second epistle, or that is in this second letter that he's writing, we've already had two chapters of it, so he's referring to this particular letter, and not as if chapter 3 is a separate letter. But he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. In other words, he wants to remind them that this is their second letter that they received from him. He says, In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Uh, the first thing I want you to notice is in verse 1, he says, This second epistle, beloved. He used that word in verse 1. In verse 8 he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. And then again I think on down in verse uh, 14 he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. And in verse 17 he used it again, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. So he used this statement concerning these people and applying to you and I as well as Christians. So he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. He's talking about sincere minds, pure minds. You know the word there for pure means, it, it's actually uh, in the original, sun-judged, sun-judged. As if you were to take a vase, a clear vase, and hold it up to the sun to see if it had any cracks in it where they usually repaired with wax. In other words, not waxed. It's not waxed as to fill a crack. And that's what it means when it says you're pure minds. I trust that our minds are so pure, and they should be pure in the sight of God. He makes them pure. He's the one that gives us a pure mind. But when held up to scrutiny, we'll not find cracks that are covered over to try to just uh, make uh, makeshift and make them do. And the only way we can have that kind of mind is, as the Bible says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, if you want to quote the rest of it, says, Who being the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in his humiliation... This mind of Christ, we should be humble. We should be uh, willing to, to follow in his steps uh, and to be more like Christ. And, of course, it, then the exaltation takes place. After he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, I believe you begin with verse 5. But anyway, what I wanted to say is this, that, you know, a lot of folks want the, the exalting before the humility. It was not so even with the Lord. He humbled himself, and then God highly exalted him. And though he was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he made himself of no reputation and took upon him that form of a servant and that humiliation that we've already quoted. Beloved, he says, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. We need to be reminded. 
You know, God wants us to be reminded. Paul, uh, Peter, several times over here, he says, I want you to remember. He says, remember, remember in the first chapter, and in the, I mean in the first book and in the second, in second Peter. He says, I want you to remember things. Look in the, uh, the first chapter of this second epistle. In verse 12, he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance. I want to put you always in remembrance. See, in verse 12 of chapter 1. Then he says in verse 13, Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle, this body, this life, uh, Peter was saying, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. See that? Over and over again. And in verse uh, 15, he says, Moreover, I endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. He used that word a lot in his writings here. To remind you. Peter knew we needed to be reminded. And you know our Lord Jesus knew we need to be reminded. He gave the church the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism reminds us of Christ's death and burial and resurrection for our salvation. And when a, 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 a person is saved and he... And he says, I'm going to follow the Lord in baptism. He goes down into the waters of baptism. He's being reminded, and he's also reminding the whole congregation that it's on the basis of Christ's death and burial and resurrection that his salvation uh, is, is dependent upon. And then when you have the Lord's Supper, it says that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death, proclaim it, till he come. And it's an ordinance. It's a... Uh, remembrance supper. It's a memorial supper. It's the Lord's supper. So we need reminders, don't we? We need to be reminded in, in the right way. God has given us the special reminders from His Word. In verse 2 He says, "...that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior." You know, if we use that first verse for a kind of a text by way of remembrance, we're going to find, first of all, that Peter deals with being reminded of the infallible Word. He speaks of it in verse 2. Let me give you a list of things, and then we will take them up as we come to. Let's use that first verse, that thought of by way of remembrance. And in verse 2, you have the remembrance of the infallible Word. In verses 3 through 5, you have... He says, I want you to remember these last day predictions. And we'll get into that in a moment. And then in verse 7, remember the certainty of judgment. In verse 9, remember God's willingness to save. And verse 10, remember the need of holiness on the part of the people of God. And these things we need to remember. Well, you, we'll touch on them as we come to them. So the first thing, what is it? The infallible Word of God. In verse 2, look at it. The infallible word. I'll rename them possibly if I can remember to do so as we come to them. But in verse 2 you have especially that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before of, by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So the apostles and prophets, the word of the apostles, the word of the New Testament writers, and the word of the holy prophets of old. We've already studied just uh, in the first chapter, I believe it is, where we said no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the word came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God, see, uh, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we actually have the evidence that 
that the uh, the Old Testament scriptures were the the holy commandments and the infallible word of God. But we have evidence even in this chapter when we get to it in Second Peter chapter three, where Peter shows that the writings of the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, are on the same level as holy scriptures and as the word of God. And we'll get to that in a in a moment, down in verse 15 and 16, if you want to glance down there, to see that the writings of the Apostle Paul are the Scriptures and they're classified as the Holy Word of God. So that what we're saying is both the Old and New Testament are divinely inspired. As Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, doesn't it? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is, mature and grown up, truly furnished into all good works. He says that all of the Scripture is given so that we can be corrected, it's profitable for teaching, it's profitable that we may be truly furnished unto all good works. In other words, what I'm saying is that in the Word of God we have sufficient guidance and wisdom to give us the full knowledge of all we need to be as Christians. Sometimes people are seeking here and there outside of the Word of God for this kind of guidance, aren't they? And really it's not necessary. It doesn't mean that some of the things on the outside will not harmonize and still guide you in the same way with the Word. It doesn't mean that. Because many of those things or some of those things may possibly coincide with the wisdom that you get from the Word of God. But if it's out there, it came from here if it's going to guide you as, as a child of God. So, uh, you know, someone might write a book on some of the things of the Bible. And the books are good. It's good to read and study. You ought to study everything you can get your hands on. Did you know, before I teach a lesson like this, I read at least from, uh, I would say, a half a dozen to ten sources. Probably on this one, this evening, this afternoon, rather, I probably read at least uh, from about five different sources. And always, you, you need to read and study. And that's what it means when it says, Study to show thyself approved. Study the Word of God and study the meaning of each and every word and each and every verse of, of every chapter. And try to find if there's something that is in your mind unclear. If there's one verse in this chapter that's unclear in your mind, you need to seek out what that's talking about. And every preacher should be diligent in this way. And if we're not, we're not prepared to stand before others and tell them what that word says if we don't know ourselves. And we must do that if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. And so he says, That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets of the commandment of us and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first. Now then, here's another thing. Verses 3 through 5, he wants us to remember and know the predictions are these last day predictions. You'll find them in verses 3 through 5. And maybe on down verse 6 will help us. So let's look at these last day predictions. It says, Knowing this first, Peter says, that there shall come in the last days. He's agreeing with what Paul said. He says there will come scoffers in the last day. You know, scoffers are Bible students, so to speak, in about a halfway measure that want to hold the things of the Bible up, not for your faith, but for, for ridicule. In other words, they study just enough of it that they want to ridicule it and put it down. And you'll find that's the context here. 
Some people do not study the Bible for their own spiritual uh, personal relationship or for spiritual guidance or for the benefit of giving it out to someone else, but for the sake of arguing it and, and unbelief. And what they know about it, what little they know about it, have you ever noticed that most of the people that want to argue it know very little about it? They know just enough about it to confuse the whole matter. They know so little about it that they can't really stand up in a in an open discussion of it, but they know enough about it that the people that are flimsy and, and not well versed in it, they can convince them it's something to laugh about. And that's what goes on in the world today. You know, you hear fellows talking out in public, you know, maybe in a coffee shop or around a town or somewhere you assemble together or see people, and they're talking, if they ever bring up the scriptures, and usually they don't, if it happens to be a matter of conversation, or maybe they've heard something on the news that would remind them of something. And they'll say, well, this, you know, the Bible says this. And they're just about as far off, off from what the Bible says as if they got it out of, I don't know, current events or somewhere. No telling where they got it. Because the Bible probably really didn't say what they said the Bible says. You know, most of us use what we call junkyard scripture. Or a lot of people use junkyard scripture. You know, the Bible does teach to be clean, but you know, we say that the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. Doesn't say that, but you know a lot of folks think that. But I think you ought to be clean, and uh, you know Jesus said to wash your feet, and you know we're taught to bathe, and we're taught to keep our bodies clean, and we're taught uh, that uh, there's a, such a thing as neglect of the body, not only physically, but there's neglect of the spiritual body. We need cleansing in the church too, don't we? But you see, people take those things out of con- context, and you can make the scripture say most anything if you take it out of context. Like one fellow was saying, he said, uh, well, the Bible says uh, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. And another scripture says, go and do thou likewise. I don't think I want to follow that kind of advice, do you? But it says he did go out and hang himself. But when it says go and do thou likewise, it's talking about doing the good things, not going out and do what Judas said. So it's out of its context, a little bit here and a little bit there, you know. And the first thing you know, you've got a muddle and a mess in the Word of God. You can't do it that way. You have to take God's Word as it is and study it and see what it says. Knowing this first, they want to hold it up to ridicule, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. Now, I want you to notice the character of these scoffers. First of all, they're lustful, walking after their own lusts. Did you know that a lack of understanding spiritual things and, and doctrinal uh, uh, standing in the Word of God, uh, a failure in that aspect will lead to failure in life. You see, if they were really versed in the Word of God, they would not be walking after their own lusts. See? But since they're so only so pretending to be versed and holding it up to ridicule, they have fallen not only in what they have been taught, but they've fallen in what they do and practice. So they're walking after their own lusts. They're lustful. And then they're theologically dead, it says, uh, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. See? They're scripturally ignorant. They're, they're theologically dead. I heard a friend telling about a preacher not too long back, and I'm not going to call any names or give you any illustrations because it's pretty close to home that he said, uh, you know, he says, I don't study the Bible. A preacher, I don't study. He says, my wife does most of the study. And I said to, 
to this lady, I says, well, maybe you ought to have his wife to do most of the preaching. If she did most of the studying, right? She could probably do a better job of it than he did. And then he says, you just come to church to worship. Sure you come to worship. But he says the song service is not supposed to be a blessing to you, and the preaching is not supposed to have to be a blessing to you. You're supposed to be, the Bible teaches that we come to worship the Lord all right, but we worship in song and praise, and, and we, we uh, uh, are supposed to be blessed by, and you're supposed to be fed by the Word of God. And the Bible tells us that the preacher is to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And if, if people, I, I feel sorry for folks that go to a church somewhere expecting to be fed on the Word of God, and they come away just as hungry as before they went. I feel sorry for those folks. And I think they ought to get in a church somewhere where they are being fed the Word of God. So this past week I had that experience with a, with a lady. She, she knows she needs to be fed and she's not getting it. And the preacher has that attitude. He has that attitude about it. As a pastor of a church. Well, I wouldn't want to have that attitude. I, I want the attitude that when I stand up here to try to teach the Word of God that you'll go away filled with something that will be food for your soul, something you can lay hold on. And when you go through the week, you'll be able to be encouraged and strengthened by it. You'll say, Brother Joyce told me to remember the things of God. You'll say, Brother Joyce mentioned here the Holy Scriptures and the inspiration of them that all was given for my benefit and for my uh, perfection and maturity, and that there would be these people that would scoff and mock and try to, de- to put it down and try to hold it up to ridicule. But I'm not going to fall for that. I'm going to stick to the Word of God. See, all of these things come out if you'll let them be digested. All right, look at this. So they say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, they were, they were pretty ignorant of that because all things have not continued as they were. And he reminds them, Peter reminds them, that there was a flood one time in Noah's day. Remember? Everything isn't like it began. And he's going to go through the original creation and say, yes, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was water, and there was land, and there was a, a firmament between after God uh, constructed the, the heavens and the earth, and he put a, a, a space between the, the waters that were above and the waters beneath, and he made the dry land to appear. And in the cre- creation, he speaks of that. But... After that, God sent a flood upon the earth, and the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and it destroyed all mankind except Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives. Eight souls remained in the ark to be put out upon the new land after the earth was cleansed by water. And almost all over the whole world, even in... uh, those countries where they do not know much about the Bible have a, at least a legendary uh, viewpoint of a great flood at some time. They have it all mixed up in one, from one nation to another, and they tell the story in various ways. But we have it in the Word of God of what happened, don't we? We have the true story of it in God's Word. So look at this. So uh, Peter says, <clears throat> For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the Word of God, this is verse 5, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. In other words, God, uh, by his word, brought judgment upon the world as it was before the days of Noah, and the 
uh, earth was overflowed with water and the things upon the earth, men and other things, perished. And so he cleansed the earth by water, in the, by the deluge in uh, Noah's day. But it says in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now, now then, so all things have not remained as they were, have they? There has been the original creation, and then there has been the flood. And he says, The heavens and the earth which are now, after the flood, since that time of Noah's day, he says, By the same word, the same word that brought judgment in Noah's day, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And he says the earth is going to undergo another judgment, and the next time it will not be by water, but by fire. And we read more of it later on in this chapter. It'll speak of the heavens being on fire, will be dissolved, and the earth shall melt with fervent heat. But we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. You know, all the, the, the atmosphere, the hydrogen and oxygen. You know, we have a hydrogen bomb, don't we? Okay? You know what it does? But you get the proper mixture of the hydrogen and the oxygen, which is what our atmosphere is made up of, air and water, and you get the right kind of sparks coming in. What happens when the when there's rain and when there's a storm and when the when the lightning begins to flash and strike? You have an explosion so much so in the air, don't you? Sometimes it hits things on the earth. Sometimes it hits a tree and sets it afire. Or it has been known to hit people and kill them instantly. I saw it one time out on the farm, within a little old farmhouse and the lightning struck something in the electrical work, and you could just see below the ceiling where the electrical line uh, went above the ceiling, you could see a streak of light follow that line underneath the ceiling. Can you imagine that? But it just followed the lines of where the electricity actually was in the ceiling, and it followed the place of where that wire was above the ceiling. Just like a, uh, a flash of fire all the way around where it was. And you know, it does that. That's not the only instance. I mean, you know, you've probably seen that happen at some time or other in various ways. It strikes the warehouse sometimes when the pump's going and there has to be a, uh, something that will uh, keep that uh, protector switch of some kind to keep it from knocking the pump out and, and, and uh, really ruining your pump and burning it up. So you have to have these things. They used to have the lightning rods, they called them. But anyway, what I'm saying is, we have the atmosphere which with a proper situation can just explode this whole world. And I believe that's actually what the Lord's going to do at the proper time. He's going to send the proper mixture of those of that hydrogen and oxygen and the spark to kindle the, the explosion, and it's going to happen. And that's what he's talking about here. Now let's look at it. Gee, I wanted to finish this tonight. Okay, look at this. But if we don't, we'll do something else. Okay, but it says, verse uh, 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Now, I wanted to just bring you on from verse 8 to 9 for a special purpose. Because Peter doesn't discuss the thousand years here, does he? He just says that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, I believe that Peter was as much of a theologian as, as anyone could be. 
He walked with the Lord and Jesus taught him personally, right? He was one of the twelve apostles and it was Peter, James, and John. In fact, it seems that he was kind of ahead of the list with the others. Three special that were very close to Jesus. And he uses this, this expression, but he says, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And I want you to notice something that he does not say. He does not say it's been 4,000 years since creation and two more thousand years from now the Lord's going to come. He doesn't use that to set a time of Christ's coming. In fact, the Jews in Peter and uh, Paul's day and all of the people of that particular day, the apostles were expecting a very near coming of the Lord. John on the Isle of Patmos in the year 100 A.D. said, Even so come Lord Jesus. They were ready. See, it was imminent. He didn't have to wait another 2,000 years to fulfill the six days that some have calculated. You see, the difference in the apostles in trying to calculate all of these times and the modern preachers are altogether different, aren't they? He was using these terms to show you that time means nothing to God. It's just like a moment. He says a thousand years in God's eyes just like a day. He could have said a thousand years is like a minute. He could have said a thousand years is just like a week. It's just a short time. He could have said it's a, it's a long time to us, but it's a short time to God, or time to God doesn't matter. See, I'm trying to get something across to you to, to keep you from falling from some of these things that uh, people fall for nowadays. Ever since, uh, or oh, even hundreds of years ago, but especially in this century, various cults have begun to set dates for the Lord's return, and some believe and teach that He's already come. Well, how did He come? I didn't see Him. And uh, they didn't see him. Well, in the signs of the times, he came. Well, he didn't say he was coming with uh, signs and times. He says, I'm going to come again, didn't he? And receive him to myself. He's going to come personally and visibly and bodily. You see what I'm talking about? So there have been cults, and now we've got into where uh, even uh, supposedly fundamental uh, preachers are setting the date of Christ's coming. Now, I'll tell you this. Jesus is going to come, and he could come at any time. That's what Peter was saying. He says he's going to come when he gets ready, and he, it will come, but it's in God's time. Now then, Jesus could come and rapture every one of us out of this church and the, open the graves of every cemetery around the world while we're sitting here tonight before you get out of this service. And one day when he does come, that's exactly the way it'll be, just instantly. But, I would be foolish to tell you that I know when that time is going to be or say that it would be this year or try to set a time for that. All Peter was saying is saying that time means nothing to God. When he gets ready, Jesus will come. See? Just like when the fullness of time was come, we studied in Galatians chapter 4 this morning, God sent forth his Son. There had been 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament. But see, when the time was right in God's mind and in God's plan and in God's purpose, Jesus was born. And when the time is right for Jesus to come again, he will come. But account, in, you know, in the, in the purpose and plan of God, he's still long-suffering. The next verse leads this into this. I want us to notice now, it says in verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing, willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, he's saying he's long-suffering to usward. Uh, by the way, in this chapter, this word is used twice over. 
It says in verse uh, 15, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. See it in verse 15? Also he speaks of it in this in the book of First Peter, chapter three, verse twenty, that God was long suffering in days in the days of Noah, when once the long suffering of God waited. So three times over in these two epistles, he uses the word long suffering. He was long suffering even in Noah's day, and notice how how that's even in the context of what we're talking about here, isn't it? The flood is in this chapter that we're studying. And he uses the same term in relation to Christ coming again, the long-suffering of God, as he used back there when God was long-suffering in, in the days of Noah, while the ark was prepared. And that's First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 20. And you have it in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and then here in verse 9. Study and follow your place now. So it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Think of that for a moment. Christians are encouraged to be, since we know that, the, that this earth is going to be dissolved, since we know that when the Lord comes there's going to be a great change take place, we're not trying to pinpoint the time that this fire will take place, because I really believe it's after the millennium. But on the other hand, uh, there's going to be a lot of things transpire. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, you don't know uh, exactly the point we're talking about. Between Revelation 20 and 21, it's in 21 where he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from God out of heaven. So we're looking for a new one. Something had to happen to the old one before you see the new one, right? So as far as the time element, we're not trying to emphasize that. We're only telling you that because of the fact of it, what manner of persons ought you to be? Because of the fact that this is going to happen in all holy conversation and godliness. Verse 12 says, Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, he has promised it in the Old Testament, he's promised it throughout the New Testament, he's promised a new heavens, look for a new heaven, New heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Look at that. So what we're saying here, from verse 9 through this verse we've read, we have two really wonderful thoughts, and that is to remember that the long-suffering of God, verse 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That he wants people to be saved. And in verse uh, 11, he wants Christians to be uh, encouraged to live, in other words, what manner of persons you ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness. He wants Christians to live a godly life. So there's two thoughts here concerning the human race, to, concerning human beings, to give them an opportunity to be saved and to give God's people an opportunity and should be an encouragement for you and I to, to desire to live for God. You know, it's hard to live for God in this wicked world, but you can't use that as an excuse. You know, have you ever heard people say, the world's so wicked, I just can't live the right kind of life? Let me tell you, 
Enoch walked with God and was not found, for God took him. Enoch lived in a wicked time when God says in that generation, right before the flood, God said, I'm going to destroy this wicked world, and yet Enoch walked with God during that wicked generation. We can't use that as, uh, for an excuse of not walking with God, can we? Just because the whole world is wicked does not mean you have to be wicked. Just because the whole world is sinful. Uh, John says the whole world lies in wickedness. And there's enough all around about you. You see it on television. You experience it. You see it uh, wrote, written about in the newspapers. You see it in public as you uh, walk uh, uh, upon this earth. Wickedness of every kind. Some things that man has imagined that are just so wicked and sinful that it, it just staggers our imagination to think that men could be so mean and so sinful in mind and heart. Depravity. All kinds. Killing, robbing, kidnapping, stealing. All kinds of sensual lust. And all kinds of failures in man to keep the things that are holy and given of God to keep them pure. I stir up your pure minds, hold it up to the glass, hold that vase up to the glass and let the sunlight shine through it and see if there's a crack in it anywhere that's been waxed over and tried to be fixed by somebody. That's the text in the verse 1. He says, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Let's remember these things we're being taught. Let's look at this again. In verse um, 13, we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. See, it's all an incentive to live a Christian life. God's coming in judgment and his promise that he's going to come and change this wicked world and he's going to come and, and give us a new heaven and a new earth where dwelleth, dwelleth righteousness is an incentive for you and I to try to live before God, it says, Beloved, seeing you look for such things, we look for them by faith. Uh, be diligent. In other words, be attentive, be wide awake, be ready, be prepared. Uh, that you may be found of him in peace. You have peace with God through Christ. Without spot and blameless. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're sinless within yourself. You need Christ cleansing. You need the daily cleansing. Even as a Christian, you say, Well, I'm a child of God and I'm clean. Because he's saved me and he's cleansed me. That's true. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right? But on the other hand, he tells us to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have to progressively do some things about our own lives. We have to progressively attend to our own spiritual well-being. And when you let your guard down and do not try, you know, Paul told Timothy, he says, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. You know, if a fellow exercises himself, he says, bodily exercise profiteth little. But godliness is profitable unto all, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You see what we're talking about? So if you exercise yourself physically in order to run a race or to box or to or to play ball or whatever, football or basketball or whatever, you exercise for that purpose. But we're to exercise ourselves into spiritual things because it profits now in this life and it profits in the life to come. And if you could live a good Christian life accidentally, you wouldn't need to exercise yourself or apply yourself, would you? 
You need to apply yourself. Sometimes you would say, we fail to pray. We're not applying ourselves. We fail to read God's Word. We're not applying ourselves. You know, we just let day in and day out drift by and say, well, tomorrow I'm going to read the Bible. Well, I need to pray, but I've got to go do this. You better take time to pray because the devil will try to rule out everything of a spiritual exercise in your life if he can. He'll figure out a way to do that. And if you let him do it, he will do it because you let him do it. He won't do it because you have to do it. You see, you don't have to let the devil win the victory. The Bible says, Risk it, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It says also in 1 Peter, I believe it's chapter 5, Whom resist, the devil, Satan, whom resist steadfast in the faith. The faith means the promises of God and the whole of God's Word. You resist him upon the basis of your knowledge and your your preparation in the Word of God, and that's how you can resist the devil. But if you don't do that, you're not going to resist. All right, let's look at this quickly. In verse uh, 15, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. God has been long-suffering in order that you could be saved. Then he says, Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, remember Peter is commending Paul now, uh, speaking in them, in his epistles, in Paul's letters, in Paul's writings, speaking in them of these things, he spoke of the same things Peter has just been teaching us, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they, uh, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, they twist, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. It doesn't mean that the child of God is not able to take the word of God and feed upon it without twisting it. But it means those that deliberately rest the scriptures and try to make it mean something that it does not to their own destruction. And another thing you find in these two verses that we've read is that Peter is putting Paul's writings upon the same basis and same level as the other scriptures. What were, what were the other scriptures in, in uh, Peter's day and Paul's day? The Old Testament. That's all they had. The New Testament was now being made up by Peter and Paul and John and the others, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, uh, the apostles, the apostle James, the book of Revelation by John the Revelator, John the Beloved. Okay, it was being made up. And so Peter here is placing all those scriptures, he says, as he does in also all the other scriptures, as they do also other scriptures. And that shows us inspiration, not only of the Old Testament, but of the New. Now verse 17 and 18, summing up. Ye therefore, beloved, he's again addressing God's children, seeing ye know these things before, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, we say. Seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice in verse 17, he says, beware. Beware lest ye also be led away by the error of the wicked. If you walk up to a fellow's gate and he's got a sign on there, Beware a biting dog or beware of the dog, you just stay back a little, don't you? He says, Beware. Peter says, Beware lest ye also be led away uh, with the error of the wicked. So you ought to shun the error, the false teachings of the wicked, just as you would shun a vicious animal that you're afraid of. And even more so because it has spiritual uh, values involved instead of physical. You might get 
bitten by a dog and you might not already have a shot and you might just suffer the wound, be sewed up or whatever, and it'll heal up in a while. But if you get bitten by these false teachers and the erroneous teachings, it can damage you spiritually and eternally. Beware. No wonder Peter used that word. Beware. And he says you might fall from your own steadfastness. He doesn't say you'll fall from your salvation, but you won't be as steadfast as you should be. But he says rather than this, in verse 18, but grow in grace. Christians are to grow in grace. And they're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow by reading the Word. Grow by, grow by feeding upon the Word. Grow, grow by studying the Word of God. In uh, the first chapter, I mean the first book of, of First Peter, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. So how do you grow? By feeding upon the Word of God. Right? And then he says, our last verse there in our context, where you have it, it says, To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Even so, let it be. To him, to Christ, be glory. In all of this that is given. Thank you for your kind attention. And let's stand together.